Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you, Sarah. This is KickServeRadio.com. We are a part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and our team consists of the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, Mats in Idaho at Gravity Fitness and Tennis. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Andy. I just came back from my first cross-country ski trip. I did about 10 miles, classic cross-country ski. We had a bunch of snow in the last week, and that to me is heaven. Now that the golf courses are closed, I am so excited that the cross-country skiing is open. The other part of our team, Johnny Levine, will be with us a little bit later in the show, the two-time Longhorn All-American. But our special guest this week is one of the great American tennis stars, who was a California boy, now is in Texas, where he is a club owner in Keller, Texas, and he is the one and only Taylor Dent. Taylor, it's always great to catch up with you, and hopefully things are going well for you and Jenny uh, at your new facility in Keller, Texas. Things going well? Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. Things are going pretty good. You know, we were battling for a long time to get the uh, facility built and up and running, and we just had our grand opening uh, about a month and a half ago, so it seems to be good. We just got to keep making it better each day. Now, when you were out in uh, in Newport and you guys had the academy out there, obviously the term academy sort of implies that you're working with high-performance players. But now that you've taken on an entire facility and it's your own deal and you've got to be a little bit broader with your programming, have you had to sort of broaden your horizons from an instructional standpoint? Yeah, and I guess the, you, I, I agree with what you said. The term academy has an implication of, of high performance only, but that's typically not what you get at, at any tennis academy. You have a, a whole uh, variety of level of player there. So even when we were in California, we were working with some kids that were aspiring just to get on their high school tennis team. And you know, for me, I don't really mind what level I work with as long as the kids kind of want to get better. It gets to be uh, pretty tedious and arduous when the, uh, the the kids don't really want to be out there but if they're just happy to get better and and uh, and play hard then then it's fun for me and and that's the same as as we have in the club now I would say that I'm still specializing in kind of that higher uh, you know tennis bracket you know I've got you know a handful of young professionals that are looking to kind of get a foot in on tour. I've got some really good juniors that I'm working with but also I swing down the other way and my uh, my son who's eight years old plays tennis. I kind of look after his little group of eight and under kids and uh, they have a good time. It's pretty funny. Taylor, that sounds unbelievable. I, uh, I've just started a tennis club in Haley, Gravity Fitness and Tennis. We've got three indoor tennis courts. We have very few juniors. Uh, we have mainly uh, uh, adults between 35 and 85. And uh, I love it. I have to say being on the court three, four hours a day, I absolutely love it. And it's not it's not really the player it's the attitude of the of the player and it doesn't matter if it's a 45 year old or a 75 year old with kids uh being in idaho it's tough to find a kid that has the dreams to become a, a great tennis player but for you 
what, what kid is it that, that sort of makes you the most engaged? Is it great technique? Is it a good mindset? Uh, is it great parents that support the kid? Yeah, I think it's the, what you said. I, I use that word all the time, mindset. To me, improving is all about your mindset. And I think that having good parents that go along with that go hand in hand. You can't have a kid maintain a good mindset if uh, parents are putting a ton of pressure on them and, you know, having them win. You know, one of the conversations I have with parents all the time is like, look, I want to put pressure on the kids. I want that. But let's make it the right type of pressure. I mean, if the kid is 12 years old and we're putting on this kid, you know, pressure on this kid to win right now, that's not really that's not really what it's about because he's not going to play 12 year olds for the rest of his life. He's going to have to model a game to where you want to play 18 year olds and up. And and that's a totally different ballgame. So let's put pressure on the kids to just do the right things and improve. And and I I tell this to my eight-year-old son all the time. I say, look, I don't care if you lose O and O. I want you going out there. I want you ripping. I want I want it to look like I'm I'm flipping on TV and I see Dominic team uh, hitting the ball. I, I don't care if you miss. Just just keep going after it. In fact, we played a little junior adult member tournament at our at our club yesterday, and I played with Liam. And you know, it was the same thing. It's just like I don't care if you double fault. Just keep ripping the surf. You know, and, and I think that's kind of the when I get kids and parents on that same wavelength because I like improvement. I mean, to me, having a kid beat somebody that's their level, good. That's fine. But I yeah. mean. The fun part is having them improve in leaps and bounds and beat players they've never beat before. Taylor, you mentioned Dominic team and you mentioned the mindset and, and clearly with what we saw in London with a final between Daniil Medvedev and Dominic team, we are now finally starting to see this evolution of this, this generation of players that is finally stepping in and sort of interrupting this domination of, of the big three with Nadal Djokovic and Federer. What is it about these younger players mindset that you are seeing? Is it what you just said that Dominic team was willing to go out there and just tear the cover off the ball and not pull back on the reins at all? Is that what these guys have realized it takes to be able to go out there with those big three and be able to, to get wins? Yeah, I think, you know, if we look at this year's U.S. Open, obviously with, you know, Djokovic not being able to to progress through the tournament, Nadal not being there, Federer not being there, you saw a different brand of tennis than we're used to seeing in the semis and the finals. Uh, You know, guys were allowed to get away with a lot more passive play, a lot more safe tennis type of thing. And I feel until those big three leave and, and are gone from tennis, you have to play aggressive. Now, if, if they end up leaving and uh, there's a, a void in that level of play, then you know we may see something that's a little more cat and mousey out on the court. But you can't play cat and mouse against Nadal. You can't play cat and mouse against Djokovic or Federer. You need to go out there. And when you watch those guys play each other, they're hitting the ball big. They're trying to keep offensive. They're trying to keep aggressive whenever they can. And, and the reason is, is if you let players of that quality play, you'll get to see how good they are firsthand. And that's not a good thing. Interesting that uh, with uh, Daniel Medvedev, obviously the champion in London, how he he's kind of the only player that that it seems like Rafa and Novak and even Dominic, how they, they kind of freak out a little bit when they play Medvedev. It's weird. Nadal, I think he hit 75% slice backhands to Medvedev, uh, and he never does that normally. Of course, he had beaten Medvedev before. Team did the same thing in the finals, and Novak in the round robin. It's, it's really a, a strange how somebody like him, who's a throwback to Miroslav Mechir, Taylor, a, a great Slovakian player in my day, won the Olympic gold, and so same thing. I freaked out 
when I played against him. So it's interesting. But Dominic Team, do you think that match, uh, Dominic Team and Novak in the semis uh, in London, to me, that's really good tennis. And when Novak was at his best, let's say, well, I don't know, earlier in the year or two, three years ago, is Team at that level now, do you think, uh, Taylor, or, or is not there f- physically? This is physically. Yeah. I, I don't know. I get asked a lot, you know, from the academy kids, oh, you know, what do you think about Djokovic and Federer losing? And, and I just have one reply. Was it a grand slam? Right. I just think <laughs> with the stage that those guys are in their career, uh, I, you can't convince me that they're preparing for the ATP World Tour finals the same they're preparing for Australian Open, Wimbledon, French Open and US Open. So, you know, the fact that they have losses to those guys in those other tournaments. OK, I, I, it's not a grand slam. Right. That's the difference. And you make that point a lot, Matt, that it's one thing to beat these guys two out of three sets, best of five is another matter. I want to get back, to, though, to the point, Matt, that you you made of teams' use of the slice backhand. And, Taylor, you and I had a conversation, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, and maybe I misunderstood, maybe not. You can clarify if I did. But you kind of made the comment that you really didn't see where the slice backhand had much value in the sport at the pro level at that time. And maybe for a period of time, it didn't. Has that sort of come back full circle to where maybe it does a little bit more? Or did I misunderstand that from the get-go? No, I, I, I said that a hundred percent and okay. we'll have to wait and see. Like I said, I, I feel like the person who's brought it back into play has been Dominic team. And, you know, he's not really winning matches with his backhand slice. He's not losing with it. That's for sure. He's winning um, with his big forehand. You know, he's, he's getting a lot of cheap points off of his serve. Um, But then again, like I said, we will see how that slice backhand holds up when Federer is hitting forehands off that, when Nadal's hitting forehands off that, and uh, when Djokovic gets to play against that in a grand slam when they're when they're fully 100% engaged. Uh, you know, I hit a ton of slice backhands, and I know what happens against big weapons uh, when you hit a slice backhand. They get, it gets punished. Tell it, I wanted to know, because you're, you're uh, Roger Federer's age, so you would have been a young pup, 17, 18, 19 years old, and Pete Sampras was was uh, on the circuit, I'm assuming, and you must have played Pete. Did you think that when you were at your best, was your serve and volley game as good as Pete's? Because you're 10 years younger, and the game, the evolution of the game changes every four or five years. It seems like they're taking a step up. We're, we're swimming faster. We're running faster. I'm assuming tennis players are, are better mentally. I'm not talking mentally, because I don't think mentally anyone can be better than uh, Rafa, Novak, and Roger. But you must have measured your game being a junior. You see Pete Sampras winning everything. And then you kind of, i got to do the same thing as Pete does. So, so what did you think of your level? I played with uh, Pete a ton in practice for a couple of years. You know, I would go up to his house. We'd meet at UCLA and we would uh, train together and play sets a ton. So I was super familiar with his game. Um, as far as the, the serve and volley effectiveness, I, he's got one of the greatest serves still of all time, first and second. You know, mine was fast, but his was better. I mean, he could put his uh, on a dime very, very often. His career first serve percentage was, I think it was 59%, which is really high for, for hitting aces all the time. So if you talk about the combo, the serve and the volley, then no, he's, he's far better. I mean, I, I, I would like to hope to think that my volleys were, you know, could hang in there with, with Pete Sampras. And, and yeah. um, I, I wouldn't have traded my volleys for, for anybody's, but I certainly would have given up my serve in two seconds for his. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, Taylor, you're being modest right now because you told a great story when you were at the 
uh, the USPTA Intermountain Conference in Denver a few years ago. You and Jenny came in and headlined the conference, and, and Matt's actually did that for us this year. But you talked about those practice sessions with Pete, and you said you guys would go out there and maybe even – let's just say, make it interesting at times. And you never, ever, ever lost sets to Pete, but you made the point that it was worth, it was worth a couple hundred bucks to Pete to be able to work on his game. Whereas to you, it was like, it's like adding money to your prize money (laughs) at the end of the year. Talk about that. Well, yeah, no, I I learned uh, it was a delayed lesson. So when I was playing sets with Sampras, I think I was probably 18, 19 years old, something like that. And I would go out there and I would win sets all the time. And, and the bet was I'd have to put up 200 bucks and, and Sampras would put up his Laker tickets. Right. So, so <laughs> boy, right? <laughs> and so I'm, you know, doing well in all these sets. And here I am a 18, 19 year old guy thinking, geez, I'm beating Pete Sampras in practice sets all the time. I'm going to win 50 grand slams. No problem. Here we come. And uh, so what I grew to realize is that Sampras was getting a better practice out there than I was. He was out there working on stuff. Uh, he had a bigger goal than to beat me in that practice. And that was a pretty valuable lesson that I try and pass on to, to our kids. And all I was trying to do was uh, beat Pete Sampras out there all the time. So I was giving him my best and he was uh, using me a little bit out there. And you got to watch Kobe and Shaq play a lot, I'm sure, at that time. I actually never even I, – I, I was too intimidated to ask him for the tickets to pay up. <laughs> I was hoping that maybe if I lost, then he wouldn't ask for the 200 bucks for me. <laughs> I mean, is, is that the, is that the big difference at Taylor? Do you think uh, uh, you have to, to be, become a great player to reach your potential? You really have to know how to, how to practice. It's, it's not enough to practice hard and give it all. Right. You have to know what to work on and, and how you, how you dedicate uh, certain parts of your game. Like you're saying, Pete must probably, maybe didn't care that much about losing or beating you in practice and he had a bigger goal. That's overlooked to me. We don't talk about how you practice and what the mindset is when you practice. Is it to never miss? Is it always win sets or what is it? Are you selfish? Are you thinking of your opponent? I mean, what, what, what do you think about practicing? I think every player in a even in their, even themselves in their different stages of development need to focus on different things. Um, so if you have somebody who's just coming back from injury and who's playing, you know, who's been practicing a lot, drilling a lot, maybe they do need to go play some sets and try to win and, 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 ha- and put something on it and, and have that focus. Uh, maybe there's somebody out there that can't, uh, I don't know, hit a, hit a, hit a backhand cross court. Yep. You need to, you need to give the opponent opportunities to find your backhand to work on that. So I feel like it's practice is always good uh, when there is a purpose specific to your game. And that can happen in points, that can happen in drills, that can happen being fed. And I just feel like that that's the biggest thing is, you know, a lot of kids that I work with are looking for the magic drill or the magic, you know, thing that's going to happen. And I'm just like, the nice news is everything works. I've seen Nadal do something different than I've seen Djokovic do, something that I've seen different than Federer do. It's not really the drill or, or who you're practicing with or where you're practicing that's going to make the difference. It's what's your mindset in that practice. What are you working on? What's the big picture? Taylor, when I was growing up, being the oldest guy uh, of the three of us, I, you know, 1973, tennis was played in such a way that you could teach an average to slightly above average athlete to emulate the best players in the world because the swings were long and there was a, I called it margin for error based tennis. And I think about 
watching your dad play doubles in the old Australian doubles style, which was you just didn't miss. There wasn't a lot of aggressive movement, but guys didn't miss. I think about watching Mats Wielander play singles and a guy that you know used his brain and didn't miss. Do you think that some of those older styles of game that seem to be like more IQ based are missing from today's sport because of how big kids think they need to hit the ball and then they forsake some of the intellect that goes with becoming a great player? Yeah, I mean, I think with how much technology's changed and how big people can hit the ball, it starts to be, you know, it's not this obvious or it's not this clear, crystal clear, but Mike Tyson said everybody's got a game plan until they get hit in the face. <laughs> I love it. When, when you're out playing the doll, you can be as cute as you want, but if he's getting forehands, it's a problem. And my dad and I talk about this all the time. I don't think there's ever been an instance in tennis where the skill level has been this high. Like these guys, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic are so good. It is just unreal. But it's an unsophisticated game. You, you, I feel like when I'm commentating at the U.S. Open, I see the same point for three out of five sets every day for two weeks in a row. I mean, they're, they're just the same points over and over and over. And it's just, it blows my mind how consistently well uh, these guys can execute that, but there's not a huge variety. I mean, we saw a couple of serving volleys today on second serves from uh, Daniil Medvedev. How often do you see that little, you know, game style, that, that, that tactic, it just doesn't happen. He seems to be the guy that's actually thinking the most out there, Daniil Medvedev. And it, and it sort of comes, not from the beginning, but he's really good at reacting to the situation, it seems. And then the other guys freak out. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, you were at the US Open, and I was going to say that you're an excellent commentator, Taylor. It's so much fun to listen to. When you're there, and uh, what do you think of the players' commitment? I've been telling people that this year I, I am so proud to call myself a tennis pro. Because to me, the attitude and, and the dedication and the commitment of the, the men and the women while there is no people watching uh, in the stand, has been just incredible. What, what do you think of the situation and, and, and how, how, how do you think they dealt with it? Yeah, I think they, uh, they handled themselves. They handled the situation very well, and they fought hard. They didn't use the lack of crowd as an excuse. Nobody did. And uh, I, I don't feel like anybody underperformed because it, was, it wasn't there. It was always the talk is like, man, is it going to affect this person in a negative way or a positive way? But it ended up being nice in, in some ways that it wasn't the main story of uh, the U.S. Open. You know, the, the players did a great job. Taylor, before we let you go, as we as we move into 2021 and, you know, we the, the Australian Open's coming around. I mean, are, are you hearing anything or seeing anything that leads you to believe that tennis is going to level out or potentially decline a little bit in popularity or in participation? Or are you one of the guys that's like, I've never been busier in my life than because of COVID? What, what was the situation like for you guys there in Texas? Well, it's interesting is tennis always when they do these studies and I don't know how they do these studies or who's doing these, you know, these uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, how contagious it is or how dangerous the sport is. But tennis always gets rated as one of the safest sports to play. Mm. So I think the amount of people that have started playing and getting into tennis has been uh, pretty large from from my perspective. I mean, we drive by, you know, some high school courts. They're full very, very often we are slammed. I mean, we have a, a ton of business, so I don't feel like, uh, you know, COVID has, has negatively impacted tennis uh, interest and tennis participation. In fact, with those studies coming out, like I said, tennis get, always gets rated one of the best. Uh, I think it's only increased. 
Uh, Taylor, I got to ask you, pickleball, is pickleball big in, in Texas? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> we don't have enough court space to put one in uh, yet, but we want to for sure. It, it looks, everybody has a great time. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of that? Is, is that something, is that a, a pathway to, to a young kid, a, sort of a four or five-year-old to start at pickleball? Or does it matter? People say, oh, you shouldn't mess up your tennis strokes by playing pickleball or squash or table time. I mean, it's just a racket. What, what's, what do you think? What's the proper path for a kid to keep their enthusiasm? Because a tennis court is very big for a four or five-year-old. Yeah. Well, obviously you have the 10 under stuff, which is very similar to, uh, you know, a paddle tire or pickleball court. And as far as like different racket sports, shoot, I, I say go for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know too many tennis players that didn't play ping pong uh, growing up and, and a ton of ping pong. I was one of them. You know, I, I love playing ping pong. And so pickleball is, is the same. Obviously, you know, it, they're, they're, it's a different game. It's different strokes. So it's fine. Um, as far as pickleball bringing tennis players in i'm not sure it'll go that way it could but I, i haven't seen that yet typically it's more of you know tennis players who are you know they're they're feeling their body a little bit or very beginner tennis players just don't have enough fun having rallies go to pickleball and you can pick it up in in 15 20 minutes and uh, you can have a have a good time she's andy can you imagine taylor on the pickleball court because this is all about standing hitting backhand volleys It's all backhand volleys. You're protecting yourself, and you just stand there and do the sort of Roy Emerson backhand volley. That'd be perfect for your tail. Well, not only that, but he could play doubles by himself because the guy takes up some space out there. That's I true. Think, I think, Matt, while we have this guy on the line here, we got to close out with this because his father represents such a golden age of Australian tennis that I have to wonder what kind of conversations you have had about Nick Kyrgios because he always evokes a response from tennis fans and tennis players around the world. I've got to wonder what the old school Aussies think of this guy. Certainly they admire his talent, but what are some of their other thoughts? Uh, well, it's <laughs> not a fair question. My dad is an Aussie right. and he's biased. So he protects Nick Kyrgios. Like, oh yeah, no, he definitely does. He, uh, he stands up for him. He sticks up for him. And uh, so my dad, my dad loves it. And he hopes that he can, you know, bring his focus together a little bit better. because he's going to win. I mean, he, he's going to win slams if he does. What are your thoughts on him as an American then? How about that? My thoughts on Kyrgios? I mean, I'm, I'm along the same lines. Look, I don't know his background or anything. Obviously he behaves differently than, uh, you know, a, a traditional tennis player would, but that's fine. I mean, I think that, Athletes get into more trouble being something that they're not. Um, now, if it's not the nice, pretty rapper that we all want to see, so be it. You know, he's got a, a bigger, bigger goal in mind than, than making us happy. Um, as far as tennis goes, do I think it's a good thing for tennis? I do. He's interesting. He's, a, he's an unbelievable player. He's a great athlete. I think it's fantastic for tennis. I mean, one of the biggest booms in tennis years when we had a few uh, guys that weren't your typical pretty little rapper out on the court. They were, they were causing a ruckus. So I don't think it's a bad thing for tennis at all. I think it's a great thing. Um, You know, I, I, I just I'd love to see him compete well, because I think that he could win slams, too. I mean, he's just got he's got too much game to not win slams. So it would be unfortunate uh, if that didn't happen. But again, you know, it just everybody has their own path. Well, speaking of being great for tennis, you certainly have been for a long time and will continue to be. I, uh, I echo Matt's sentiments about what a great job you do behind the microphone. And we certainly appreciate you bringing that to our show this week uh, during the ATP Tour Finals edition of KickServeRadio.com. So, Taylor, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Taylor. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
Okay, everybody, you've heard us talk about Squad Pod on the show quite a bit, and I'm now joined by Melise Michael, and he is the product manager for Squad Pod. And Melise, tennis professionals at private clubs with their students, they like to use Facebook to communicate. So tell us a little bit about why Squad Pod might be different from something like just using Facebook to communicate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. So SquadPod is designed and built around something we like to call closed architecture. Everything you do in SquadPod stays confidential in our U.S. owned and operated communication platform that's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Unlike Facebook, where anyone can kind of find your pages, view your discussions, and even your photos, things in SquadPod are non-discoverable. And it's only accessible by specific people that you want to have access to that content. So it's private, it's confidential, and it's secure. But how does SquadPod handle my data? Because you hear a lot about these companies that are willing to share it with other companies or even sell it. Yeah. So we don't mine or sell any of your data for predictive analytics or training or anything like that. What you'll find out there is a majority of the social media platforms actually built on the opposite of what we are, which is open architecture and have no problem selling third parties, everything about you, your decisions, all your data. So within open architecture systems, privacy kind of becomes this illusion, almost like a false sense of security. Seems like there's lots of options on the places that I use SquadPod. Help me understand what those are. Great question, Andy. So you can use SquadPod on and off the court with family or even for your business and at work. It's got chat, video, file sharing, and discussions all in one place. Best of all, we're committed to being 100% American-made and protecting your right to communicate privately and securely. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I have SquadPod and I love it. And, you know, learn more about privacy and and SquadPod at squadpod.com slash serve. So that's S-Q-U-A-D-P-O-D dot com slash serve s-e-r-v-e and and based on this conversation i'd say that if you have facebook there's no reason you shouldn't check out squad pod as a new way to communicate safely and privately i highly recommend it It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And welcome back, everybody, kickserveradio.com. I'm AZ. Our team consists of Matt Lander, And now we're joined by Johnny Levine. And here's Johnny. So, Johnny, it's ATP Tour Finals weekend, and it was a, a, a huge weekend of great tennis in London. What was your take on the whole thing? Well, I think it was a great tournament. Um, I think what I, what I took from – from this year's tournament, seeing team and Medvedev get to the finals, it, I really believe that we might finally be seeing a changing of the guard. You had Medvedev and Nadal play a phenomenal semifinal match. I just think that these guys, team and Medvedev especially, when they walk on the court against 
against the big three now. I believe they used to feel like they had a chance to win. And I think now when they walk on the court, they think they're going to win. And I think that's the biggest difference. And I think you're going to see that now going forward into 2021. All right, Matt, with that being said, um, Taylor Dent, who we want to thank for coming on the show with us earlier, made the comment that when some of his students ask him, oh, what do you think about so-and-so beating Nadal? Or what do you think about so-and-so beating Djokovic or Federer? His response was, was it in a grand slam? You have made the comment in prior shows that we've done that until these players can win in a best of five situation, uh, there may, there may still be some work to do. I, I, I have a tendency to agree with Johnny that in situations like what we saw this weekend in London, we are starting to see these guys walking out on the court, believing they should win as opposed to just hoping they might win. What are your thoughts now that you've seen what you've seen in London where Djokovic and Nadal both lose close three setters in the semis. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, to be honest. I think that w- what I'm finding is that when Dominic Thiem uh, is up against Rafa or Novak, it seems like uh, he can really hang with them physically. And in fact, I think he's slightly better than them physically. His forehand is, is maybe even better than Rafa's. Okay, it's an indoor court. Uh, he's not afraid of Novak and he can hang with Novak. And, and he's the one, he's the player that does something, that creates something. Uh, so physically, I think Dominic Thiem is, is just slightly ahead of Novak and Rafa. Of course, the mental part uh, is different. And then you see Medvedev. And Medvedev actually makes Novak and Rafa in London play a horrific match. And I've never seen that player before. I've never seen a player that could do that to, to uh, Roger or Rafa or Novak uh, the way that Medvedev seems to be doing. They seem to freak out and they seem to, seem to hit too many slice backhands and they're, they're afraid of him in a way, but then he doesn't hit winners. So it's, it's really interesting. I think they, they show a, a vulnerability against him. And then against team, I do think, like Johnny said, I think team is there. I think he's as good as them physically, hits the ball a little harder. Can, they, can he beat them in three out of five? Yes, I think he can. I really do. But I think what the difference is that team and Zverev uh, and Medvedev, what, where they're not as good is they're not as good in the matches leading up to playing Nadal and, and uh, Djokovic and Federer. They have to win the first three or four rounds easily. They cannot go four or five sets in a couple of rounds because then they're going to be, they're going to run out of energy. So I think they need to get better at playing three out of five set matches, uh, not just against Novak and Rafa and Roger. Johnny, when I watch Medvedev and I see what he brings to the court against these players versus what I see from team, I see team become sort of a physical mismatch for most of these players. Whereas with Medvedev, I almost see him bringing an edge to the court with his attitude, not drastically dissimilar to what we used to see from Robin Soderling, who we had on the show several weeks back. Do you notice that as well? And do you think that in watching Medvedev almost, almost border on being disrespectful to these other players in the way he sort of scowls on the court that other players are going to take note of that and maybe try to implement a little bit of that themselves. I don't know if I would go that far. Um, What I thought was maybe the coolest thing in in today's final was when Medvedev beat team and, and won, you know, the final point, I mean, he, no emotion. I mean, he just keeps everything intact. He doesn't go too crazy. 
I think his emotions are great. I think he he really handles himself well mentally out there. He's got a game that I think is very difficult for these top guys, for all the guys, because he, he doesn't look that great, but he gets everything back. And he's got a huge first serve. Um, it's a little bit underrated. And I think that he really, really drives players a little nutty. And he reminds me quite a bit of, of a guy that played in Matz's era and my era, which was Miloslav Michir. He's like a cat on the court. I mean, he just, he just gets everything back and he doesn't, he doesn't seem like the best athlete, but boy, can he really, you know, be aggressive when he needs to plays the big points. Well, doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, which, which is what I'm talking about when he wins the match. I mean, he's just so subdued. I think there's really something, pretty unique about that and I don't think you see that in most players they show so much emotion and I think he's really got his his mental game be in really good shape right now now we've talked about team and we've talked about Medvedev and what they are doing right but then we've got this the rest of this sort of this class of players that we've expected a lot from and and maybe is it uh, the case that a guy like Tsitsipas does allow too much emotion to play itself out on the court and that Zverev has a tendency to, to get caught up with some of the demons that he clearly has that are swirling around in his mind. What are some of these other players missing Grigor Dimitrov, these players that we really would have expected to contend for these titles by now, what have they not done as well as what we've seen from, from Medvedev and team? Well, I think first of all, to be, uh, to be uh, fair here, I think Dominic team has literally just figured out how to, how to channel his emotions and what it is that he's trying to achieve. Uh, because I think up to about what, two years ago, I don't think he was a great big match player. We never really knew what was going to happen. How was he going to play? He was going to try the whole time. I mean, trying physically is one thing, but emotionally, was he going to be uh, involved? Was he going to go nuts? Even today, he went nuts a little bit and looking at his coach. And then I think he gave up today after after winning the first set and then he lost the second. I feel like team kind of, uh, kind of threw the towel in the third set. And I think that's where the biggest difference with Roger, Rafa, and Nova. They would never do that. You know, you'd never, ever see that. So I think team is, is maturing and is getting there. And I think he'll be number one in the world here very soon. Uh, I think he's the only one that can actually push Novak and Rafa out of there, out of this top, uh, the, this next generation. I think Tsitsipas, Denis Shapovalov, um, I don't think they have it... They don't have it right yet. I think they're too emotional. They're too erratic um, in their tactics as a player, in their emotions as, as a player. Tsitsipas, I love Tsitsipas game. Just a little bit too crazy. And to me, when I watch him and when I watch Denis Shapovalo, here we go again. The parent thing. I really feel this is a, a time for Tsitsipas and Shapovalov to cut away, cut free. Zverev is trying to do it. He's immature on the court compared to a team or a Medvedev. Tsitsipas is a little bit immature on the court, again, compared to the best players in the world. What's going to make that difference? I don't know. Maybe cut loose and, and try to figure out a way on your own because it's working to this point, but at some point, I think mean, you got to cut loose. And I'm not saying it's the parents' fault or anything, but I do feel that they are not as mature as team and Medvedev. 
Johnny, before I go back to you, I do want to ask Matt's about one more player because this is a guy that before the, the before the final uh, tour championships won his first title, and it's a guy that you've been talking about on this show on a regular basis, Matt's, and that's and that's Yannick Sinner. Uh, from Italy, who won his first title in, was it the Sofi? Yeah, Sofia, yeah. So, so excuse me, Sofia, right. And he beat uh, he beat Vasek Pospisil in a really good final. And now I get it. Now I see what you have been talking about all this time. This kid's 19 years of age. He's so mature. Is he on the brink of breaking in and being amongst the teams, the Zverevs, the Tsitsipas? Is he, is he a part of that class? And should we expect... 2021 to be a breakout year for that kid? So I think Yannick Sinner, he has the, he's the full package. Mentally, he's unbelievably uh, stable. Physically, he moves amazing for a pretty big guy. Maybe it has something to do with growing up in, in the Alps because he's from Northern Italy and he's, he did a lot of uh, Alpine skiing. Novak Djokovic, of course, is very, very, very famously had to stop Alpine skiing when he wanted to take tennis seriously. So I think there's a lot there. But the way he hits his forehand, Sinner, I mean, he's got basically the best forehand in the game. It's incredible how hard he hits it, how precise he is with it. Uh, but in the end, I think it's the mindset. I mean, it's very interesting that that the ATP Finals is being moved now to Torino in Italy, and they're going to have Yannick Sinner. He's going to be in it soon, if not next year. Matteo Berrettini is going to be in it again for sure. They, Italy have some great players, and, and it seems like they have really figured out how to channel that uh, Latin emotional part with some great physical uh, ability because Yannick Sinner is, to me, is the perfect tennis player. He really is. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm so excited to see him there. And I think he's going to be – he's not afraid of, uh, of these other Tsitsipas and Shapovalov or, or anybody. He's as mature as Boris Becker was when he was 18, 19. Well, and, and Lorenzo Sonego can be added to that list. As we've talked about, Johnny, you practically had the entire Italian Federation at your tournament uh, at the Arizona Tennis Classic in 2019. Now, if there's an American player that's going to jump into this group, do you see anybody out there that's ready to make that jump? Or do you feel like we're still a ways off from what you've seen? No, I, I think we had some really good results at the end of the year from a from from a few Americans, which is which is promising. Uh, Francis Tiafo had a had a great end of the year, and so I think he's going to be back and and a threat to do well in, in in big events. I think we need to give uh, some credit to a couple couple Americans that just won a couple of the challengers. Brandon Nakashima just won the uh, the challenger in Orlando, and Dennis Kudla won the challenger in Cary, North Carolina. And those events typically would be, you know, maybe a little lesser caliber, but with the with the fewer events on the tour right now, those those tournaments were loaded with great players. So those guys are playing great. Um, Nakashima's, I think, eighteen, maybe nineteen, maybe just turned nineteen. I'm not even sure. So everyone is looking to him to see some big things, maybe crack the top hundred. Um, you've got the usual guys in there, and in, in in the top fifty, you know, you've got Isner, you've got Query. You've got Tennyson, Fritz, and Riley Opelka. Obviously, we're expecting really big things out of those guys. But some of the younger guys are coming up, and I think it's exciting to see. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some, some great results out of, out of the Americans in, in the next slam. All right. Lots more to get to when we come back. We're going to talk about what the plans are for the Australian Open because they're still somewhat up in the air. 
Uh, and we're also going to talk about the fact that Matt's had an opportunity earlier in the year to play some golf with a guy that ended up having a pretty good performance at the end of the year as well. So you're going to definitely want to hear about that. You're listening to kickserveradio.com. We are a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. One more segment to go, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Matt's Johnny and AZ. And uh, we want to thank Taylor Dent for joining us earlier in the show. It is uh, just on the heels of the ATP Tour Championships. And now we look toward 2021, guys. And when you start looking toward the new year, you don't have to look very far into the year before you start thinking about Australia. But things are up in the air, Johnny, and it's a situation that may not necessarily be ideal for all the players, but for a guy who may have been in the, in the boat that you were in when you were playing, just to get an opportunity to get into the main draw of a slam, you, you kind of do what you got to do, right? I think so. I, I think the uncertainty is is the hard part for the, for the players, not being able to make their plans and, and their travel arrangements and know where they're, you know, when they're going to go, if they're not going to go. And I think that, um, you know, not having a set date just puts so much uncertainty into the players' lives. And I think especially around Christmas time and the New Year's, and I think it's very frustrating for them. At the same time, Australian Open is trying to deal with, you know, government regulations and and working with the government. They've just been locked down in Melbourne for many months. I, I had heard they were just opening up the country. They don't have many cases now, but they don't want to bring any in. So they're being very, very cautious. I know that the, the tournament organizers are going to come out with some new information in the next in the coming week or two, uh, potentially moving the date and, and pushing it back further. More frustration for the players um, I know that some of them have been concerned about a two-week quarantine that's definitely on the table if, if they do have it in January, which means that players have to stay in their hotel room when they get there and they can't leave, they can't practice. So 
I mean, how, how crazy is that? So players are, are talking amongst themselves and frustrated. I think we'll know a lot more in the next week. Um, if they move the date and get a more certain date, maybe that's better. Maybe the players then know what they're dealing with and it'll be easier for them to, uh, to, to prepare for the event. So a lot up in the air, but at the same time, the players have to be, you know, looking at the, the calendar this last six months, how fortunate is it that the ATP was able to pull off the, the amount of events that they did with, with this pandemic the way it is. So um, I think we just have to hope for the best. So Matt's Johnny is able to take a, a look from the mindset of a guy who's maybe, you know, a hundred in the world and trying to move up and, 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 and defend some points and that type of thing. But you would maybe be looking at this situation uh, from the standpoint, maybe of a guy that's won a few majors as you had. And of course, Australia being one that you had tremendous success at, if you were in a situation where you had already won multiple majors, like a Djokovic and a dollar or a Federer under the circumstances that are, being presented right now for this year's Australian Open, what would be your mindset toward that tournament? I think Nadal already set the tone not coming to the U.S. Open. Um, I think he thought that was too risky. It was gonna, it was gonna interfere with his preparation on clay. Um, I mean, there's no chance that these guys are going if they have to quarantine for two weeks and and practice for one day before they play. There's no chance that any of the top players are gonna go, uh, and I don't think that's gonna happen. I really don't. I don't think the Australian Open is ever gonna put this event on with that kind of uh, those circumstances. There is, I mean, I would go out and say there's zero chance that the Australian Open is going to happen the third and fourth week of January if they force the players to quarantine for two weeks. So the situation in Australia was that I heard is that the Australian government is not allowing anyone to come in to the country from the outside in 2020. First of January 2021, they're going to allow players to come in. And, of course, that, that, that means the lead-up events are not going to happen. The ATP Cup is not going to happen. The tournament in Sydney, uh, Hopman Cup, and all that stuff that used to be played, uh, the, the schedule is not going to be the same. And the Australian Open is not going to go on the third and fourth week. Not with the top players, it isn't, if they uh, force them to quarantine for two weeks. So I like what Johnny uh, said. Hopefully, they just reschedule it, give the players some time to – sort of plan and and be ready they do not want to go and play a tournament to have a chance to get injured remember what the temperatures are like in australia how hard physically that tournament is and if you not practice i mean they're not gonna risk anything that doesn't matter if it's a major to rafa or novak or roger they're not gonna risk it so i think the australian open is gonna follow um what those top players really want to do because they want them they need them to play the event now, Johnny, the question begs to be asked, uh, you are slash were uh, a tournament owner with the Arizona Tennis Classic, which was played during the second week of Indian Wells. And people think, well, it's a challenger, you know, not that big a deal. Well, we've talked about Matteo Berrettini won that. Jamie Murray won the doubles. Uh, you had, you know, Mikhail Kukushkin, who's had a great run. Debbie Gofan played that tournament. You had a hell of a field. John Millman was there. I mean, you had a lot of guys that have done very, very well since that tournament. Has the ATP contacted you proactively to find out what you would like to do with your event? You forgot we also had Sonego in that event. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you got them all, Johnny. Yeah, it was a great event, and we were we were just so bummed to to, to have to uh, cancel it uh, right on you know basically a few days before we were supposed to go this year. Um, 
now looking into 2021, you know, I've I've been hearing some rumors about Indian Wells. I don't know much about Miami, but I've heard that Indian Wells, there's a good chance they won't go forward unless they're allowed to have fans. And thinking about the Australian Open pushing around Miami and and uh, Indian Wells, those those are big big tournaments to to just uh, you know roll over. So not sure what they're going to do as far as my challenger. You know, I do pride our tournament on having that special week between Indian Wells and Miami, not knowing what Indian Wells and Miami are going to do for the calendar. It affects my tournament. I'm in a a very tough spot with, with my tournament right now, just for the sake of not being able to have fans. I don't know that I could have fans and my tournament is sponsor hundred percent sponsor based. And if I can't offer the people that are paying the bills for our tournament, the opportunity to come to the event, socialize and watch tennis makes it very difficult to have the event. And then the other piece of the puzzle for me is I have a country club that uh, is my partner at the event and they have members and they have their own protocols. And so it's just a big hurdle. I think the whole challenger circuit, uh, especially in the United States has, has been really hit hard. I know that Oracle's canceled all of their challengers not sure. I mean, basically all the challengers in the U.S. are run by the USTA. They need to have the, the events for the for the young Americans to be able to have ranking points and and opportunities to make some money. I think they'll do them no matter what. If you know, they'll figure a way to do it. My event being, you know, 100 percent funded by, you know, me and my sponsors, it, it makes it much more difficult. So um I, I would say that the chances are slim for us to be able to hold the event in March, but we'll just have to see. Andy, I got a question for Johnny because you're you're because of your tournament. What do we think of the the, the Hawkeye situation now? I'm starting to like it. I'm starting to like not having line umpires. Uh, so for for a smaller tournament like you, Johnny, I mean. Do you feel like, do you have to follow suit? Do you need to put that system in place where there's no line umpires and, and the expense of that and then the shot clock as well? Do you feel like you have to keep up with what, what we see on TV to feel legitimate? You know, the answer I would give to you on that, Matt, is understanding what the cost would be involved to have that system. But boy, would that help out a lot because the responsibility of a, of a tournament owner uh, for a challenger at my level, I, I'm sure it's similar. Uh, I have to pick up all the the costs of the umpires and the and the officiating and the hotel, and it becomes a big thing. And then I've got to you know shuttle them back and forth. It's it's one of the um, the things I have to tackle in a tournament that that becomes kind of cumbersome. So to be able to have a Hawkeye system and not worry about that, I hate to put lines people out of business, but it sure seems like it would be a uh, one less thing to think about if if I was able to have that system. Matt, one of the things that we're going to need to do in 2021 with regard to the coverage of tennis is be extremely flexible and nimble. And I think you're creating an opportunity to be able to do that with what you're going to do right from your hometown there in Haley, Idaho, with regard to some broadcasting that you're going to do and some tennis coverage. Uh, obviously, we're doing what we're doing with kickserveradio.com, and that's a lot of fun for us, and and we're happy to be part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. But what you're going to be doing is a little bit more of a, uh, of a produced television project. Talk about it. 
Yeah, um, we're going to put together with a friend of mine, Tim Brown, we're going to do a little Instagram, uh, sort of a 59 second uh, trailer and then try to put together a little highlight show of the 2020 year in review. Uh, We got a a couple of different camera angles. We got the jib, which is the camera moving. We got a slide camera. You can use some footage, some stills. You can put put me in the screen like you're literally standing on the court at the US Open while the boys are hitting the ball. So I'm going to try and go that avenue and and see how that works. I think that, um, you know, we we have to uh, reinvent ourselves a little bit because I don't know if I'm going to London to a studio to commentate the Australian Open for Eurosport. I don't, I'm certainly not going to Australia. I'm going to try and do a little thing, a little Instagram story, I think it's called. It'll be out here in a couple of days and uh, we'll, we'll plug our show in that as well. And thank you, Andy, for bringing that up. So keep your ears and eyes uh, ready. It's going to be something coming from Idaho. All right. Well, Matt's V-Lander Tennis extends well beyond just the teaching that you're doing at Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And Johnny, one last question for you is that, you know, as we as we move forward into into this coming year, do you do you honestly feel now that that this big three are, are they done winning majors? Or are you just saying that you feel like this next crop of guys it's going to maybe be a, a little bit more of a split deal that the older guys are going to get theirs, but the younger guys are going to be there too, that it's all going to be kind of anybody's ball game on a given week. I think the difference going into the slams now, at least for me, is that I don't think that, that Djokovic, Nadal and Federer are the automatic favorites. I, I don't see that at all anymore. I really believe that team and Medvedev, especially Medvedev having final the U.S. Open with the with the recent results that he's had. And team, if you look at his win-loss record against the big three, he has a winning record against all of them. And the confidence that he has right now, knowing he can beat them, having won the U.S. Open, getting to the finals of this London tournament, I really believe those two guys are right. They're now the big five, in my opinion. I know that they haven't won the amount of slams. Medvedev's never won a slam, but it's coming. And, and, and I really believe the way these guys are playing that they could be favorites in, in the next slam events. I think one thing that, that Matt said something, and I really am in agreement. I do believe team will end up being number one in the world he has a game that is, um, it's just such a pleasure to watch him. That that one-handed backhand, I know we've always been talking about Barinka's one-hander and Sitsipas one-hander, but that one-hander that team has is a, a thing of beauty and the way he chips it, mixes it up. And I think we've got Medvedev and team now is just as, as favored to win slams coming into 2021 as the big three. Okay, before we go, Matt's earlier in the year, you had an opportunity to play golf at Riviera Country Club in a pro-am with a guy that I think most golf fans around the world are probably pretty impressed with right about now, a guy that doesn't show a lot of emotion, and that is Dustin Johnson. What an amazing opportunity you had to play in a pro-am with DJ. Tell us about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so I played the program at Riviera for the last couple of years. Uh, uh, last year, I played with Zander Schauffele uh, and uh, a couple of other amateurs. And this year, I think I, I replaced John McEnroe because McEnroe played it last year and he was in that foursome with, with uh, uh, Dustin Johnson. Wayne Gretzky was in it. 
Uh, and then David Zaslaw, who's the CEO of Discovery Media, Discovery Communication. And I think Macron uh, didn't make the trip uh, this year. So I got put in that foursome. So, no, we didn't have Wayne Gretzky, but we had Wayne's uh, wife, Janet, who, of course, is the mother-in-law of Dustin. And then David Zaslaw, the, the boss. And then they threw me in there. So I was so – well, first of all, I I was nervous. I'm always nervous when you play golf. I'm I'm nervous when I play with you, Andy. But but I did oh, yeah. know Janet Janet Jones as she was back then because she used to go out with Vitas Gerolitis, of, ah, course. of course. Uh, and that was for quite a few years. So that was a uh, that was kind of nice, and that mellowed me out a little bit. But yeah, to see Dustin Johnson kind of walk up next to you and, and shake your hand, and you're going to hit a tee shot in front of him? You kidding me? But anyway, let's take you to the first tee. The first tee at Riviera Country Club is literally on the balcony uh, outside the restaurant. And everybody is watching. Oh, and the first no. tee is where everybody hits from. That, that's the white tee, the blue tee, the whatever tee, the yep. championship tee. So that's the only tee that we hit our tee shot from, uh, which is the same as where the pros hit theirs from. So I hit a good drive, get out in the fairway. I hit a good rescue, par five at Riviera. The pros hit driver, six iron kind of thing. And I hit a, a driver and, and a rescue, maybe three wood. And I got about 50 yards left. Now, Andy, you play golf with me. So I have the yips when it comes to chipping uh, left-handed. <laughs> and I will admit to that. So any shot that is uh, under 50 yards, I go to right-handed. Yep, so I chip right-handed. And, and I got this shot. First green at Riviera, I got 50 yards in, and there's a bunker between me um, and the hole. And I know that I do not want to put a left-handed lob wedge into my hands and then just sort of lay the sod over the ball because I hit the ball so fat. That would be too (laughs) embarrassing. So I'm going to go and I'm going to sort of stretch my limit right-handed, which is about 50 yards. And I hit this sand wedge from 50 yards right-handed, and I topped it. And it rolled 50 yards into the bunker in front of the green, in front of the green. And Dustin Johnson comes up walking and he walks by me and he looks at me and he says, oh, you're all messed up, man. (laughs) And I just shrunk into like, oh, my God, I can't believe Dustin Johnson just told me that. So I couldn't play for a couple of holes. And I started playing really well. He started reading my putts for me. And he was such a nice guy. He's my big big favorite on the PGA Tour. Uh, he was a great guy, and the game is just incredible, of course. But but as a human being, what a nice guy. And he was really nice and helped me out with a lot of things. If you had to compare him to a great tennis champion, demeanor-wise, stylistically, would it, would it be Borg? Is there somebody else that kind of reminds you of just – I mean, the guy's got, like, ice water running through his veins and seems like he's got – a heart rate of about 40, the way Bjorn was always rumored to have. Who does he remind you of? No, he actually reminds me of Federer. Uh, he okay. is, yeah, he's Federer, uh, completely the same. I mean, obviously they care about winning, but they don't show that in a way. Federer has just started showing that lately, I think. But uh, I think they're just so um, uh, engaged in hitting the golf ball or hitting the tennis ball. I always thought that Federer uh, loved hitting a tennis ball more than any other person I've ever seen. Okay. And when you watch him play matches, I mean, he tries to hit the tennis ball into the hands of the ball kids in the corners. And he's actually aiming at their hands. And this this is at, at any score line. And I think Dustin Johnson, to me, 
looks like that kind of guy. He just loves hitting golf balls. The funny thing is, that's how we amateurs should go about our business is just loosen up a little bit. Don't care so much. Smack that thing around and definitely don't make it so important that you get the yips. I can speak to that as well as anybody. Boys, thanks so much. Great show. Want to thank Taylor Dent for joining us. We want to congratulate Daniil Medvedev on a tremendous win. Three set victories in the semifinals over Rafael Nadal and in the finals over Dominic Team. What a great way to end the season. Gives us a lot to look forward to in 2021. We are KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. Our team is comprised of seven-time major champion and former number one in the world, Mats Vlander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. And we look forward to catching up with you guys next time when we're going to give out some Player of the Year awards for 2020. So you're going to want to catch that. In the meantime, have great holiday seasons, everybody, and we'll be back in December.